0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Salmon Trout Steelheader Podcast. My name is Lucas Holmgren. I have a special guest on tonight that I'm really excited to speak with by the name of Scott Ammerman. Scott, welcome to the Salmon Trout Steelheader Podcast.
1: Lucas, thanks for having me. This will be exciting and fun.
0: Absolutely. Now, um, if you could give kind of a quick overview of what's been going on in your world um, legally in regards to fishing and fishing opportunity can you give us a little breakdown of what that is
1: sure so um this year odf and w announced that they were going to do some pretty massive restrictions on all of our oregon coast fall chinook fisheries so i jumped in really quick i've worked with odf for 30 years you know taking bird stock fish collecting you know scale samples doing a bunch of volunteer work for ODFW. and w um you know we've created broodstock runs on the Wilson on the Mistaka you know do some stuff on the Silads all kinds of stuff and so I've worked with them at length so um when they started talking about severe restrictions I tried to dive in and find out why and the more I dug into it the more I found out that our forecasts were actually really strong for this year they were projecting a really good season and so I didn't really understand why we were being severely restricted so I set up a bunch of meetings um, you know I've got a close personal friend that's one of the Commissioners for ODF and W and we um, you know kind of got some meetings set up and went and talked to ODF and and looked at all their science and found that there was no scientific reason for us having restrictions this year that the run forecasts were huge we we're having way above escapements and just a couple people ODF and W to do be conservative in the name of conservation not because we needed to but because they wanted to so they wanted to take away our fishing rights and kind of short-sighted on their behalf because what they don't realize is when they take away our fishing rights um, the fish just get harvested in other places not in Oregon so as I went through this process I kind of got frustrated I would talk to them I just couldn't get any traction I realized the only people they ever listen to are those fishing groups that sue them and so I kind of let it be known that if we couldn't come to some kind of agreement I'd probably file a lawsuit um, which then got them to change all the rivers I fish to a two fish limit and a ten fish annual limit instead of a one fish limit and two fish limits like a lot of the other places were but uh, I was never doing it for myself I was doing it for all the private individuals that live alongside the river that have to go out there and fish and I could put new clients in the boat every day but if you live on the river, you can't not fish the river you live on. you got to, you know, you're not willing to drive, you know, 50 miles to go to a different river if you have a nice place on the river. So um, I've watched the Sius Lobby closed for multiple years over the last couple of years, you know, restricted down to one a day, one a year. And there's no reason for it. As soon as we take restrictions, Alaska and Canada just increased their harvest to harvest more of our salmon. So I um, kind of started... Trying to negotiate with ODF and W, and ultimately ended up filing a lawsuit um, against ODF and W in the state of Oregon. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Trying mean, to keep going, but
0: <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you you did your due diligence at first and tried to be reasonable and and work with them on this. But it is is kind of the incentive that ODF and W is going up against is just whoever sues them is the one that the squeaky wheel gets to grease? Is that what's going on?
1: Sure. So what you see is you see ODF and W the last 10 years has really been anti-hatchery, anti-hatchery production, trying to restrict a lot of the rivers on hatchery fish because they got sued by anti-hatchery you know, hatchery groups. And so, um, you know, we it doesn't go unnoticed that they start reacting and, you know, doing what they have to do to try to not get a lawsuit. And so, i started mentioning the fact that they only react to those people that sue them and so um you know as i dug into this you know i was part of the CMP process which is the coastal multi-species plan it's a 10-year plan for how we're going to um regulate the coastal fall fisheries for the next 10-year period and that was from 2014 to 2024 and when we wrote those rules, we looked at a lot of these small communities and said, look, we can't have restrictions that close these rivers because you're going to decimate a lot of economies. You're going to do all this stuff. So we really we did a two year process. We had stakeholders get together from all the different areas, so ODF and W staff. We really, you know, wrote an outline of how these rules and regulations should be set for the next uh, 10 years. We wrote a 237 page document. It's called the Coastal Multi Species Plan. And in that, the most restrictive we're ever supposed to get on these coastal rivers is one a day, five a year. Closures was never an option. Getting more restrictive than that was never an option because we realized when we stop harvesting our fish, Alaska and Canada just take more of our fish. And so... You know, historically at one point in Oregon, we harvested millions of salmon every year in Oregon, every little small coastal community. Tillamook had four or five fish processing plants and canneries. I think the Coquille had eight along the Coquille that were fish processing plants and canneries. And, you know, they would fish and catch all these salmon and they'd, you know, can them and sell them throughout the Northwest. And then soon we started having more and more regulations come in and we started restricting how many fish you could harvest here and how many fish could be get netted or how many fish could be whatever. And so every time we did restrictions, we didn't stop harvest. We just changed where harvest happened. And so soon all those fish processing plants and canneries moved to Canada and Alaska. And now we harvest those same millions of salmon every year in Alaska and Canada. I think they harvested 164 million salmon in Alaska last year. Um, you know, just as an example, that's their commercial harvest take. Now, um, you know, a certain percentage of those are our fish, and we know through coated wire tags and pit studies that probably anywhere from, you know, 40% on a really conservative number of our fish get harvested in Alaska and Canada and get recorded back as being harvested up there, meaning that that doesn't count all of the bycatch, the fish that get caught in the pollock nets, the fish that you know don't get you know recorded into the system and that kind of stuff so um, on a higher end some of our coated wire tag stuff shows that it's 80 to 90 percent of our fish and so you know if you do 80 or 90 percent on a run that returns to Telemuck Bay if we get you know 5,000 fish back to Telemuck Bay that means they're killing 45,000 every year of those fish in Alaska and Canada, you know, before they get back to us. And so we're fighting over the last of the scraps, and all of a sudden, you know, Oregon's telling us they want to be more restrictive, and they're doing it in the name of conservation. What they don't understand is we are all managed under a thing called the Pacific Salmon Treaty. The Pacific Salmon Treaty has regulations for how all those fish harvest and stuff get done. And, um, you know, a lot of it was done through the political system. and. Tends to be a very corrupt system. I think that eight different Alaska politicians have been arrested, have been cited for taking illegal bribes from the commercial fishing industry. Um, You know, we're regulated a lot by the Magnuson Stevenson Act. Right after the Stevenson Act got enacted, um, Ted Stevens got. Busted on, I think, eight different counts, taking over, you know, a million dollars in illegal bribes from the commercial fishing industry. Uh, those aren't, those don't count the legal bribes they take. I'm just saying these are the ones they took legally. And so a lot of the stuff we're up against is a hard uphill battle. And so, um, if we try to get Oregon and the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, or even the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, to fight for our salmon, they just are unwilling to go up against this Pacific Salmon Treaty and what's going on up there. So um our salmon get regulated, but like I predominantly fish the Silets River and our Silets River, um the Pacific Salmon Treaty wants to manage to make sure that we have a minimum escapement of false chinook on the that's two thousand eight hundred fish. Um F and w wants that minimum number to be 4,200. Um, last year, our escapement was 11,000 fish on the slats. So when Alaska sees 11,000 fish escapement, they want 2,800. That means they're going to increase their quotas until they can get it down as close to that 2,800 as they can because they feel like they let too many come back.
0: That is this inc- is all good. That is just incredible to me. Uh, the... The fact that the harvest can be that great, uh, it brings one thing to mind, first of all, is that there must be a pretty solid out-migration of juvenile fish if they're able to harvest that many and still get that many back on such a small percentage. So what is your opinion? First of all, does this lawsuit have to do with the entire Oregon coast? And second of all, if it were not for alaska and canada commercial fisheries what do you believe the status of these oregon coastal streams would be
1: well i think we'd see a more historical return we'd see unbelievable returns and this year on our fall chinook runs we're seeing incredible returns and part of that is because a lot of these commercial fishing processes and stuff like that in alaska got closed down in 2020 due to COVID restrictions on their canneries, on their fisheries, on their how many people they could have in their working so they weren't able to process as many fish and that kind of stuff. So, And then we closed all of Oregon and a lot of Washington's coast ocean fisheries here in the northwest so all signs where we we're going to have a really strong return this year we're having one of the strongest returns we've seen in at least the last 10 years if not the last 20 years up and down the oregon coast and so knowing that we were going to have this really strong return being told we were going to be severely restricted left me saying well if you restrict us on a year that we have a high return how often even close our fisheries And so what we started seeing now is ODF&W is more than willing to close our rivers. So like last year, they closed the Siuslaw River completely. Well, me as a fishing guide, I can up and go to a different river and fish somewhere else. But those people that own property on that river, worked their whole life, retired, bought a piece of property, can't go fish in their backyard. The people that own businesses or that kind of stuff along the river can't just up and move their you know rv park to the next river over so that they can make a living you know and so i'm fighting for this for all of those kind of people and you know when they did a one fish limit the year before on or two years before on the same slot a one a day one per year limit Who does that affect it predominantly affects the people that live and want to fish there every day and you know, if you're a guide, you can probably find someone different to go, you know, a number of days, maybe you won't book as many trips and that kind of stuff. So for me, it's really about fighting for everybody. And so I filed this lawsuit over all the rivers on the Oregon coast for fall Chinook. And I kind of just took a blind leap of faith that if I started this process, that the fishing community would rally around me and support this. So I kind of took it on and started this process solo And started, got a hold of an attorney, he talked to an attorney, and then the Salette's Anglers Association jumped on board, and we figured out that we could take all of the donations for the lawsuit, let everybody have a tax donation write-off by, you know, having them donate money to our 501c3, and they donate money to our 501c3 um, that kind of stuff the Port of Siusla jumped on board and said they would love it to be part of this lawsuit because they've been severely restricted and closed for the last few years we have a couple tackle shops that kind of stuff a couple fellow guides jumped on and started doing this stuff and then we had groups like the L.C. Sportsman Association get a hold of us talk to us and made a you know, considerable donation to the lawsuit that kind of stuff so it's kind of working it's it's uh, kind of just, I'm just trying to get people to be passionate and want to fight for our fish. And that's really what we need. And it just seems like ODFW looks at sports fishermen in Oregon as a problem they need to regulate instead of a customer that they need to support.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. Button- yeah, go ahead. And, you know, uh, this is the type of thing that, you know, for me as an angler in Washington, of course, I do love to go down to Oregon, maybe to fish uh, for Chinook, especially for Steelhead. But if we have some sportsmen coming together in Oregon uh, and having a win for fishermen, that's the type of thing that's going to resonate across the board in the Pacific Northwest. So this is not just an issue for the Oregon coast people who definitely are affected massively. I mean, I've been down... During fall Chinook season, you know, Salmon River, Hebo area, for instance, you know, that town just comes alive during uh, the fall Chinook run. And when it's restricted, all those businesses lose so much economically. Now, before we go any further, um, I'd like to know for, for just any individual with a debit card or a, or a checkbook, what can they do to help out this effort?
1: Sure, I'll make sure I give you a link to our, um, so Angler's PayPal, uh, you know, address people can send a check to, that kind of stuff, they can always, I'll get you, you know, my email address, my Facebook profile page, whatever, people can reach out to us and I will dial them in to any way that they can help and don't.
0: Okay guys, so I just got the information from Scott over Facebook here, which by the way, you can find out all about this issue. And learn more about it by searching Scott Ammerman on Facebook. That's S-C-O-T-T-A-M-E-R-M-A-N. And you can find his public posts about this. Learn a lot more. The address. You can send a check to Selects Anglers Association, or S-A-A, at 82581 Rogers Road, Cresswell. That is C-R-E-S-W-E-L-L. Oregon 97426. Or if you're able to, you can send through PayPal to Seletz Anglers Association at yahoo.com. And that is S I L E T Z A N G L E R S A S S O C I A T I O N at yahoo.com. And you will see the SAA logo. And the name on the PayPal account is Mike Kelly. Also, you can uh, order Scott's phenomenal eggs at AmmermanEggs.com. But that's not really what he's after in this podcast. He's advocating for Oregon anglers, Oregon Chinook, and the fact that Alaska and Canada are taking all those fish that you could have had. And this affects Washington, Oregon, California, Canada, and Alaska itself. And we're not saying to shut down every commercial angling opportunity, but simply to have a more even split for anglers in our local rivers to catch fish. And back to the episode.
1: Against some of this over in Alaska and Canada, um, and it's, you know, some of it's the upper tip of Seattle, all that kind of stuff as well, but that whole ocean over-harvest, if we can kind of start winning some of those battles that's not just good for Oregon, that's good for Washington, that's good for everywhere. So, you know, if we reduce them by, you know, some percentage, we could instantly start seeing double our returns in a short period of time. And so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, in my 35 years of guiding, I've watched, used to not be uncommon to weekly catch a 50-pound Chinook in Oregon. Incredible. And on the, you know, that kind of stuff, and we'd see an occasional 60, and, you know, I've seen photos of 70s and that kind of stuff off the coast and that kind of stuff, but now if we catch one over 30 pounds, it's a trophy, and it's because our fish just can't survive seven years in the ocean. It's not that they die when they're big, it's that they die at 5% of the Time when they're one year old, and ten percent when they're two year old, and twenty five percent when they're three year old. You accumulate all those things, and by the time they get to a seven year old adult, they just aren't around anymore. So all of our fish, whether it's Alaska, Oregon, anywhere, have started decreasing in size. And Mm -hmm. you look at it. We harvest all of their food. We go out and harvest all the herring, all the sardines, all the you know, prawns, all the different stuff, we're catching them in nets while we're trying to catch a five cents a pound pollock that goes to McDonald's for filet of fish and, you know, all this kind of stuff, so, um, you know, they're just getting beat up at every chance, but somehow we took our inferior, I'm joking, but our inferior hatcher fish, we took them to Chile and... Those fish get released into chilly streams, and they're coming back as world-class 60-plus pound Chinooks now. And, they have, and it's the same. Yeah, it's the same genetics. The only difference is they don't have this huge commercial fishing industry out in their oceans.
0: Absolutely, and those fish, like you said, the quote-unquote inferior hatchery fish have naturalized to their environment. They've uh, within just a couple generations have developed these different run timings and are absolutely massive while our fish run the gauntlet for several years and as as technology and time goes on uh not only us as sports fishermen with our technology and rods and you know our our different fish finders and such we've gotten you know so much of an advantage over the years but the commercial fishermen up there in alaska and canada do as well and so the You bring up a wonderful point that I wish was um, understood a little bit more that when you don't have that crazy amount of commercial harvest, those fish truly can get giant and come back. And I think that is a possibility in the future. So when, when we talk about this and you talk about possibly reducing some of that commercial harvest, what, what exactly does the lawsuit entail, or what does it ask for? What are you fighting for specifically in the lawsuit? If you could break down sure. what the lawsuit so, is meant to accomplish.
1: Well, my lawsuit is specifically to try to force ODF&W to follow their own ORSs, to follow the CMP. We wrote this policy that they're required to follow. ODF&W is choosing not to follow the regulations set before them, and they're just choosing to go outside the guidelines, and they're basically saying we're bigger than law. We can do what we want. So every you know every state agency has you know Oregon statutes that they're required to follow as to how they run their you know their corporation, their business, whatever you know how ODFW is supposed to process. So we're battling my lawsuits in legislative court. We are we're suing them to force them to follow the CMP. And so the coastal multi-species plan and the ORSs that they're required to follow. They're choosing to not follow this year and instead be restrictive because someone within the agency wants to be more restrictive and reduce our fishing opportunities and try to curtail more things, not really realizing that when they take less fish in Oregon, it's not like we just harvest less fish you know if we stopped fishing in oregon or washington completely for the next 20 years our runs aren't going to rebound because we're not they're just going to increase their harvest and so one of the first times i really realized this was we closed in the halem river in oregon in i think 2007 to 2009 somewhere in there and when we closed in the halem river Everybody was like, "This is great. Let's close it for a couple of years. Our will return really strong. This will be great." And so we kind of got a lot of sign off, even from a lot of the local businesses and that kind of stuff. That were like, "Okay, this is going to suck for you, but it's going to be good." That same year, Alaska and Canada increased their ocean quotas twenty eight percent. Wow! And so we took we took less fish; they took more. And it's a prime example of that. Is this year's Columbia River? Um, you know fall Chinook seasons that we closed the Columbia for five prime days to try to limit our impact on the Thule salmon, and we reduced our impact by four point two percent on the Thule salmon. I'll send you a graph afterwards. You can share with people that want to that want it. Yeah. So we reduced our impact by four point two percent. Turns out that they were woefully wrong in their projections. We had huge returns, so we never needed to close this, but since we took a reduction Canada Seattle and that kind of stuff under the Pacific salmon treaty they increased their ocean harvest by 4.5 wow. percent so overall we had a we had a net loss of 0.3 on the Thule impact but we reduced ours they just increased how many fish they took yeah and so we just can't. We did this for nothing. We closed the Columbia, and that entire economic impact was unbelievable. So that was the first question I asked when I went into ODF&W. I said, what's the economic impact of your closure on the Law last year for this number of times? What was your economic impact when you closed Telemup Bay last year? What did you do to these economies? What did you do to these businesses? And ODF&W and says, we don't know. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have any knowledge. We don't, we've never done that. Well, we wrote this CMP that's 237 pages. We wrote a 98-page economic study that was all about that, but we never addressed what would happen if they closed it because that wasn't an option in the CMP. Yeah. But we definitely, in that economic study that was written by somebody else for ODSW, they said ODSW should address the fact of what happens if they restrict beyond these points and what would do that, how much economic impact that would have? And ODFW hasn't done anything like that. That's a basic, if you're going to do restrictions and close stuff, you want to see what kind of economic impact you're having. So, what we're doing is we're killing the Oregon economies, the Washington economies, and we're trying to let it all happen in Alaska under the Pacific Salmon Treaty. And when I say Alaska, what you need to know about the Pacific Salmon Treaty is Canada has had every one of their returns decimated so all those great cook inlet fisheries all those once great fraser river salmon all that kind of stuff that was once great has been decimated so they've been begging for 20 years for alaska to take less under the cmp and they can't get alaska to take less and so when when they've been forced to take less Alaska actually negotiated to get Canada to take more of an impact and reduce their fisheries more and they're willing to do that because they don't want to keep decimating their returns but Alaska then just continues to harvest and reduce less and so in the last go around we got a 10% reduction in the amount of harvest they do in Alaska of that Canada took seven and a half percent and Alaska took two and a half percent of that impact so we with our federal taxpayer money give Canada, I think, $13 million every year to take less fish. So not only did they negotiate that, that they would get Canada to take less fish instead of Alaska, then we end up giving, I think, Alaska, like $7.5 million to go ahead and harvest the fish the way they do. And so there's just a lot of political corruption stuff like this that's just unbelievable. And, um, And so my lawsuit is not to make those big changes up there, but to get the ODF and W to start fighting for the sports fishermen in the Northwest, start fighting for us instead of fighting against us, trying to restrict us. They're restricting us this year when there's no reason to be restricted. Mm -hmm. We're going to reach escapement. we're going to be well above escapement on all of our coastal rivers this year. And they're restricting us because they want to restrict it. We had staff members in ODF and W telling us that this was going to be the new normal. These restrictions would be forever going forward. And so I'm like, this is going to suck. If we're restricted on a really good year, we're going to see 25% of the years various rivers in Oregon are just going to be closed. And we're not going to reduce the harvest in Alaska during those time periods. So what's happened is, like you said, as we get better technology and that kind of stuff, Alaska has now decimated every one of their own returns by over-harvesting and that kind of stuff. So if you read the CMP when they say it, I mean, not the CMP, the Pacific Salmon Treaty, When they say it, they're like, okay, we know we've decimated all of our returns and our runs are not going to reach full seeding. But we're going to go ahead and fish as much as we always have, but we're going to switch our fisheries out, and we're going to try to really target these north-migrating salmon that are going back to, I mean, sorry, south-migrating salmon that go back to Seattle, you know, Washington, Canada, Oregon, all of these returns. Mm -hmm. So they're switching the way they target their fisheries to try to really exploit our fish and try to take less of their fish because they've already decimated their returns. They don't want to take less fish. They just want to change what they harvest. Just different
0: fish and our fish, yep.
1: Yeah, and so Alaska's really teetering on the brink of collapse. Mm -hmm. So there is a chance that over the next... You know, 10 or 15 years, we start getting more and more restriction. And the big victory for us recently was that the Northwest Treaty Tribes got a seat on the Pacific Salmon Council that negotiate the Pacific Salmon Treaty. And they actually fought really hard to get more salmon back to the Northwest. And they actually made some regulations and kind of held Alaska accountable for some of their overharvest they've done. Um, You know, one year, Alaska wanted more fish. They got told no under the Pacific Salmon Treaty. So somehow, magically, right at that last minute when they were reaching their quota, all of their electronics went out, and they over-harvested 125,000 schnooks. Oh, man. And, and, you know, quote-unquote, they couldn't get their radio communications to work, so they fished too long and took the extra 125,000 fish they wanted. Yes. There was no repercussions to Alaska for overfishing. And so now when they overfish that way, every year if they overfish, they lose a fish for the next year's quota. Right really? off the top. And that was something the tribes helped us do. So I know a lot of people get frustrated with the with the tribes and the fisheries and the netting and that kind of stuff, but we in the Northwest got to work together. We got to work with the, you know, gill netters here in the Northwest. We got to work with the tribes, and we all got to fight to get more of our salmon back. And I know that's probably not a popular opinion, but that's just my hope of how we're going to hopefully win and start getting more of our fish back here to the Northwest.
0: You're 100% right. You know, the fracturing between even... Even as crazy as gear fishermen versus fly fishermen, not to mention, you know, gill netters versus recreational and guides versus weekend warriors. Uh, It's so fractured. But in the end, every single one of us is going to do better and be happier if we have more fish returning. To me, it sounds like even with our reduced runs, we have pretty decent out migration of fry and smolts. And, um, it's really sad to see how many of them just disappear in the ocean. And so I, I just have a couple more questions. I know you got to get going. Um, so really quick, um, first of all, I kind of want to mention something, Scott, uh, the first time I heard about you, I was working at music world and at the time I was at music world and battleground, which is just a wonderful guitar store, um, musical instrument store. And I loved it still do. I still fish with Matt Golkey. Um, who's a part owner there, and his wife, Jody, wonderful person. But anyway, right across the street was uh, the Battleground Chevron, and there was a guy in there by the name of Brian. I don't know if you remember Brian or not. I but, remember Brian well, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, good fisherman, funny guy. We'd go in there and BS, and he told me about the Ammerman eggs. And over the years, I had so many people tell me, if you're gonna buy store-bought eggs, you go to Chevron and Battleground, and you get Ammermans. Don't mess around with the other ones. Get those ones; they're phenomenal. And I have, and i fished them on my local rivers and had success for Chinook and Coho with them. And uh, and so I just really quick wondered, like, if you could give me a quick overview on how long you've been doing the 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 commercial egg curing and if you could give a quick rundown on where those are available for listeners
1: sure so um you know i've been a fishing guide in the northwest for 35 years i go out and catch fish and there's times where we're catching fish around people and nobody else is catching you fish so everybody was like we got to get your eggs we got to get your cured so i started marketing them and you know for a long period of time we sold them in all the gi joe stores we've ran an egg and cure business for over 20 years here in the northwest and that little store in Battleground would outsell most of our big G.I. Joe stores and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And um, So, you know, it's one of those really cool places. And people drive for hours to come fish there. And I'll have people that'll go, you know, I never go fish the mouth of cat without going and getting a jar of eggs from Battleground first okay. or that yeah. kind of stuff. So, you know, it's it's what I try to do is I try to sell a northwest egg. Um, you know, we get fish that are surplus fish here in the northwest. We buy the eggs, we cure them up, try to make them a guide quality egg, an egg that would be something that I would be proud to fish myself and sell a quality product here in the Northwest. And we sell them at, you know, Battleground Chevron. I know we were at fish Fields in Twalton. We got a variety of stores, um, you know, Pacific City Hardware, Chinook Bend, RV Park, um, you know, a bunch of variety of stores throughout the Northwest. We're at ammermaneggs.com. Um,
0: Do you, you post ship a link them?
1: There. We do, we ship all over the U.S. Really? Okay. So I sent eggs this week back to Michigan. I think I've shipped eggs to every state in the Northwest, but yes, we ship them all over. Um, I've got a courier system, Next Day Express Delivery, that uh, does uh, all my courier stuff here in Oregon and Washington. We'll deliver it to your door usually the next day. They pick them up for me, throw them in the refrigerator, freezer overnight, and then ship them out the next day and that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty cool. Really
0: that, cool see, Scott, in. I didn't know that you actually shipped them. Um, we do. So, for instance, for me, since I'm pretty near Battleground myself, I got a fishing trip on Thursday. I don't have any eggs stocked up because, unfortunately, my freezer quit working a couple weeks ago, and I lost tons of fillets. I lost a bunch of cured <laughs> So I'm going to stop by tomorrow and see if they have any there at Chevron. Okay. But, guys, what I'm saying Bye. to my listeners here on the Samitraos Theolider podcast, it's really rare to be able to buy a high-quality cure and actually have it shipped. So where, what was the website for that again?
1: So it's ammermaneggs.com, and I'll give you a link, and you can share it in your yeah, subscription or something like that. Yeah, send and them
0: over. I'm going to so- put... I'm going to first put the link to the donation. Guys, okay. any sort of donation that you can do is not only going to help these Oregon Coast fisheries, but it's going to help all of us in the future. And uh, so I want to get that link. I'm going to put it in the description. And then Ammerman, if I'm not mistaken, is A-M-E-R-M-A-N?
1: Yes. Eggs.com. eggs. E-G-G-S. E-E-G-G-S. Yep.
0: Okay. And you know a ton of us. Either we don't have eggs or we're not confident in our cure or whatever it may be, like me losing a bunch of eggs and fillets in my freezer. Um, that's, a, that's a huge advantage. Um, and then I had one last question. Scott, I would love to talk to you a lot more. I know um, both of us have time restrictions here, so we got to end things um, shortly. But my last question is, when it comes to escapement and counting, how accurate is odf and w and have you seen any issues with their counting of reds and fish
1: yeah so that's kind of the problem that we have a lot of times is uh, due to the poor funding, due to COVID restrictions, due to all kinds of different stuff, they tend to have the person that's the lowest level employee at ODFW go out and do the spawn counts. Um, they don't tend to see the fish very well, and they refuse to adjust. So during years, we have really low flows. They won't count um, where the fish actually are. So on the select's rye fish, they refuse to count any fish that are in the main stem of the Siletz. They only count the tributaries of the rivers, and during years of poor flow, all the fish will spawn in the main stem because they can't get into the tributaries, and they'll tell us there's no fish spawning. And I'll be like, well, they're everywhere. I'll take you out tomorrow. I'll show you a thousand of them. Yeah. And they refuse to take us up on that. So... That is incredible, um, Scott. Yeah.
0: Just that, as any fisherman or even anybody that walks the river knows, in these low flows fall chinook especially because they come in with not very much time before they need to spawn they're going to spawn in the main stem how could a organization that's supposed to be in charge of our fish dismiss that and not even do that how is that you said you've offered I, i don't
1: know i mean we offered to take them and show them put them in our boats take them and let them count them do that kind of stuff and so what happened is is on the year of really low flows, two different years of really low flow, they didn't count any fish on the slot because they were spawning in the main stem and then they ended up closing our rivers, not because we didn't have a good escapement, it was because they failed to count them. So on both years they closed the slot we told them they were wrong and then the escapement and the spawn those years were actually very productive and so that's the, one of our big frustrations is we just can't get them to... Do a better job of doing spawn counts, and we're trying to see how can we force them to do those, how can we force them to do those correctly, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's now, definitely right there where we're at. So Scott,
0: one thing I've wondered, and I think this is especially the case for counting winter steelhead in particular, but what about when you have really high flows and low visibility? I mean, obviously if they won't count the main stem when it's low sure. and clear and they should be easy to see. Do you think they're missing fish in high off-color flows as well?
1: Those are are the two times. When the conditions are perfect and they can count, they count really well. When the water is super low and the fish are spawning in other spots, they don't count them at all. And when the flows are really high and they can't visibly see, they don't count them very well. And so, at least in Oregon, they tend to count very formatically. They count on this day, each year, this section of river, regardless of what's going on, they only count those areas. And so we're not getting a representation of all of what's returned.
0: That, yeah. So, I, I do remember on a local yeah. river, um, the escapement, it had had some really strange conditions and a lot of high water. The escapement that they reported uh, between me and about seven or eight friends, we had supposedly caught two thirds of the run. Sure. And that wasn't well, even what, close. That's
1: what ODFW said in our lawsuit that we catch sixty-five percent of the fish that return. Yeah, and that means we have to hook well over hundred percent just to land sixty-five <laughs> percent. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that that just makes no sense. But exactly. Um, I ain't have to run, but let's just make this part one and let's plan the time in the next week or two to do a second part.
0: Absolutely, Scott. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Uh, Guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. If you could tell your friends about this, this is a very important episode. And again, Scott, I really appreciate all the information and what you're doing. I'm going to put that link in the description. Please get them over to me. And uh, looking forward to speaking to you soon.
1: Okay, thank you. And I'll forward you a bunch of information uh i'll send you a bunch of information with links and stuff like that uh this evening or by tomorrow evening at the latest
0: perfect all right thanks guys thanks for listening to the same trial steelheader podcast